just a reference to where we are today in our study this morning. It's going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that I would like you to turn. It is the last portion of chapter 4 that we'll be looking at this morning. And I'm grateful for the fact that the Lord revealed to the Apostle Paul the details of what he shares in this portion of Scripture. It's one of two places in particular that much emphasis is placed on a certain event that is not yet come. But I'm also mindful of the fact that this day today is a day where the church celebrates another event. And that event is the day that the Holy Spirit came upon believers in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after the resurrection of our Lord. The day of Pentecost is actually a feast of Israel. One of the seven feasts that God ordained for the people of Israel to celebrate particular events. The first of those feasts is the Feast of Passover. And in the week of Passover, there are three feasts in particular that the Jews had to observe. As fellow Jews, they would be required to come to Jerusalem for three out of the seven feasts, the first of which, again, was Passover. During that Passover week, there was also the uh, first fruits, and there was also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, first fruits and unleavened bread, as well as Passover, were fulfilled to the day by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first fruits, in particular, marked a beginning of counting of days, and that Again, first fruits was a feast that happened on the Sunday following the Passover. And counting 50 days from that Sunday, they would come again to Jerusalem on that 50th day to worship the Lord in what was then known as the Feast of Weeks. We know it as Passover. Now, it's significant to the Jews because it is one of the feasts of Israel. There are three more that take place in the fall. But that one feast, the Feast of Passover, uh, and the Feast of Pentecost, rather, was a very special feast, and it did have meaning for the church, and still does have meaning for the church, because it was on that very day that the Holy Spirit descended upon those who were gathered in an upper room, 120 servants of God, praying waiting for that which the Lord had promised. Because just ten days prior to that, Jesus had instructed his disciples as he prepared to ascend into heaven. And he told them, wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes down upon you. He didn't put it quite that way, but that was the implication that Jesus said, you can expect to see something happen that has never happened before. And you're to wait in Jerusalem until that day. Well, it was ten days later they were gathered in Jerusalem and the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. Appeared in a very, very peculiar form as though they were tongues of fire upon their heads. And they began to speak in tongues, other languages they hadn't learned. They went out into the temple area and they continued to do that and it caused quite a stir. And everybody was asking, what's going on? What does this mean? Because they were hearing 
these 120 souls proclaiming the good news in languages that they hadn't learned. Some of them said, well, they're just drunk. And when Peter heard about that accusation, he couldn't hold it back any longer. He gave the very first sermon in the Christian church that resulted in 3,000 souls being saved. Remarkable day. And that's the day we're here to celebrate. But we're not really going to be celebrating that particular event. Because on that day, the Spirit of God came down. What we're going to be looking at is the day that the church of God goes up. That's the day that we call the rapture of the church. It's a day that is still yet to come. But it's a day that Paul calls our blessed hope in Titus. It is that day that stands apart from all of the other days that we know of that is so very, very important to us because we are among those, I believe, who will be caught up together. And I'm going to be talking about specific words that Paul uses and hopefully we'll set it in everyone's mind that this particular event is indeed an imminent event. By that I mean it could happen anytime. There's nothing prophetically that has to take place before that event occurs. So we should be looking forward to it, should we not? In fact, what Jesus had said to his disciples when they asked him, what is going to happen in the end days? And what would be the sign of your coming? Jesus told them all about the things that the Jews, in whatever day that would be, would be expecting to experience. And then he ended that response to their question with these words. Keep looking up. Your redemption draws near. Jesus expects all of the church to have that expectancy in our hearts that he could return any moment, any time. Paul had that expectation. And you might think, well, well, if that's the case, then Paul must have been wrong about the prophecies relating the Lord's coming because that hasn't happened yet. And he apparently thought that it was going to happen in his day. All that Paul ever said was that we should be always expecting his coming. None of us knows the day of the hour. Paul never said it's going to happen at such and such a date, at such and such a time. He just said, be ready. He warned the church, be ready. Jesus warned the church, his disciples, be ready. Expect it. Long for it. Tell others about it. But be prepared. Jesus gave a wonderful parable about the virgins, ten of them. Five of them were prepared. They had oil in their lamps. The lamps were trimmed. The other five didn't really pay attention. They didn't care. They didn't realize how important it was for them to be prepared. But there came a time when the bridegroom came, suddenly, without notice, and those who had trimmed their lamps and filled their oil in the lamps were prepared to go and out 
go out to meet the bridegroom. The others said, hey, give us some of your oil so we can go out too. But the response was simply, not so, because if we give you some of our oil, then none of us will have enough. You go and buy your own. They didn't come back in time. Understand the meaning of that parable. Be prepared. That's what Paul is going to be talking about here. The Thessalonian church was a young church. Paul had been with them for three Sabbath days. And however long after those three weeks, nobody knows. Perhaps just a few days, a few months perhaps, we're not told. But he went on from Thessalonica and went further south into Achaia, ended up in Corinth. And it was in Corinth that Paul wanted to know how the Thessalonian church was doing. He finally received word from Timothy. Timothy finally made it down to Corinth to meet with him and told him about the fact that the Thessalonian church was indeed thriving. It brought great joy to Paul. But there were questions that the Thessalonian church had. And the questions were based upon the conditions in which they were finding themselves having to live. It was very much like the conditions of our world today, by the way. There was church persecution. Many in Thessalonica were against this new sect of Christianity. And it caused great consternation among the believers because they were being persecuted. And some of them had even lost their lives. It was a terrible time. Much so much so that the Thessalonians told Timothy to ask Paul, well, what's going on? If Paul had talked to them about the coming of the Lord, and he did, he told them many things about the coming of the Lord. But if that is so, what about those who have died? Did they miss this rapture of the church? What about the persecution that we're suffering in? Have we entered into the tribulation period? Those two questions are actually observed by Paul and and focused upon in these last verses of chapter 4. And we'll look also at a few other places in the Word of God as we move forward. I want you to know the Thessalonian church believed that the rapture, they all were looking forward to it, was an event that they could indeed believe is going to take place, but they were concerned because of their conditions, because of their situations that they were having to deal with, that perhaps the Lord had already come. They missed it. The tribulation has started. And again, those who have died in their faith, what about them? If the Lord is coming, they're already dead. There are some things that they did not know, and Paul begins here to explain. And it's worth our while to study it together as well. You know, in a world that we're living in today, there are many, many things that are happening all around us. The world is indeed a sinking ship. Institutions are indeed crumbling. Institutions that were ordained originally by the founding fathers because of their faith in God to be moral institutions, they are no longer. They are falling into depravity. The world around us does not want God, for the most part, to interfere with the things that we want to do. 
whatever the argument may be, if it's a worldly philosophy, it is anti-God. God will not change. His word remains true. They don't have to believe it, but their unbelief does not change the truth of God's word. Never will. God is true. His word is truth. And it is his truth that sets us free. It is the word that is his truth that sanctifies us, makes us to be called apart, separated, holy, trusting in him and in his precious word that says, I will return. Praise his name for this, people. We are in a place where we can trust, no matter what happens, that this word will be indeed fulfilled. So if we're to experience times of difficulty, like the Thessalonians were, and like so many around the world are, we can trust in him. And we can be patiently waiting and looking for his return. That's his promise And that's what Paul has written here in this portion of Scripture that we'll be reading today. Verse 13 of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. Paul begins with these words, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Take note of the fact that Paul is saying, You don't need to be ignorant, unfamiliar with, without knowledge of. The word ignorant is where we get our word agnostic. You've heard people say, well, I'm not really sure. I'm an agnostic. Really, what they're saying is they're ignorant. The actual root word implies you're an ignoramus. You've used that term, perhaps, in your Everyday living, well, it's kind of not a good idea to call somebody an ignoramus. But that's what they call themselves when they say, I'm an agnostic. I don't know. And that's what Paul is saying here. I don't want you to not know. I don't want you to be ignorant. But he also says that we're not to be sorrowful as those who have no hope. If our loved ones die, and frankly, most all of us have experienced the death of somebody we've loved, but as a believer, if that individual that we loved so dearly has gone on to be with the Lord, has died physically, we know that the promise of God is certain, that one has not really died, He or she has just fallen asleep. That's a term that the Bible uses for Christians who have passed on from this life. The body is separated from the spirit, the soul. The Bible tells us plainly that the body goes into the ground, the soul goes to be with the Lord, if that person was a believer. Plenty of scriptures that tell us The soul does not fall asleep. You perhaps have heard some denominations that are very well-known, popular denominations, speak 
of this concept of soul sleep. When you die, your soul goes into a place of rest. But that's contrary to the Word of God. The Word of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament do not speak of soul sleep at all. You'll not find that idea, that concept in the Word of God. It is something that people have misconstrued. Because Jesus himself said about Lazarus, just a few days before, the disciples and Jesus had been told that Lazarus was sick. But Jesus decided not to go to the place where Lazarus was. He tarried for a while. Finally, they received the news. Jesus is on his way now with his disciples, and they were concerned about Lazarus. Jesus said, Lazarus is asleep. And they said, well, that's good. If Lazarus is sleeping, then he's going to recover from his sickness. And Jesus had to correct them. He said, no, no, you don't understand. Lazarus is dead. So Jesus made the connection, as Paul does here. When you die as a believer, it is as though you are sleeping. I know that when I'm sleeping, although I breathe and I can be heard as I'm sleeping, my eyes are closed, I'm not conscious, my body is not aware of what's going on around me. In that sense, the body, when it's put into the grave, is sleeping. But the soul is separated from the body. The soul does not enter into that state of sleepfulness. The soul is very much aware. Take a look in the book of Revelation, where John tells us that the tribulation saints who have died for their faith during that tribulation period will speak out from that place in heaven where they are, their souls, their bodies are not, but their souls are in heaven, and they cry out to the Lord, how long before you take vengeance on our death? And Jesus comforts them just for a little while longer until the remainder of those who are dying or to die like you have, will be also martyred. What about in the Old Testament? Elijah. The widow that he ministered with for so many years, her son died. She went to Elijah to ask for help. He came. And he put his body on top of that dead body. And he prayed to the Lord. And the Bible tells us very explicitly that his soul returned to his body. His body was there. His soul wasn't. What about when Lazarus was raised from the dead? Lazarus had been in the grave four days. His sister said, when Jesus said, take the stone away. But Lord, by now his body has deteriorated. It stinks. It's decomposed. Four days. It's too long. What are you asking for? Jesus explained to them, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. If a man or woman dies, believing in me, yet shall he live. And if he lives, he shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? What did Jesus mean? If he lives, he shall never die. We all know, saints 
that have lived during our lifetimes, that have gone to be with the Lord. Their bodies are in the grave. They did indeed die. What did Jesus mean? Well, this meant simply that though the body was separated from the soul, the soul went to be with him, and the soul continues to live. Paul's going to address that as well as we go here. That's why we can say that our sorrowing for those that we've lost is not a kind of sorrow that others who do not have this hope have. Because their sorrow is a terminated experience. Their loved one, as far as they are concerned, if they don't know Christ, is gone forever. Not so with us. We'll see them again. We'll be together in glory with them who have gone on before us. And this passage of Scripture explains how that's going to take place. So we do have a hope that others do not have because of our faith in what Christ has promised, what Paul is speaking of here in this portion of Scripture. This is rich. This is awesome, good news. He goes on in verse 14 to say, For if we believe, I suppose we should say, the word could be translated, since we believe. But if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and I do, do you? Please say yes. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. That's where again we see this word sleep. But wait a minute, if they're sleeping then how is it that he's bringing them with him? Where is he coming from? He's coming from heaven. He's coming with his saints. Those who have gone on already before us, they're there with him. That's why Paul can say to die is gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. The gaining that we have is entering into his presence our souls are going to continue to exist. Paul says that when the Lord comes on that very special day that we'll be looking at here, those who have gone on before us will be coming with him. They're not yet in their glorified bodies. And that's why the souls are coming with him. Because their souls will indeed be reconnected, re built for eternity in glorified bodies. Read on, it says in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then... We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. There's a lot in that passage. We'll look at it together now a little bit more closely. It says, this is the word of the Lord that Paul is expressing. There's no place in the word of God, the New Testament scriptures do not give us this set of instructions that Paul is revealing here anywhere else. So apparently, Paul either heard it directly from the Lord, which is most likely. Remember, Paul went down into Arabia and spent many, many months there 
learning from God, learning from the Lord. He had many times been visited by the Lord over his ministry days. So apparently, this is the most logical explanation of what Paul said here, that Jesus explained to Paul that these events are going to take place and this is how it's going to happen. He says, first of all, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Take note of the pronouns we and those. We who are alive and remain. That's all of us who are still breathing in this life. We still are vertical. We still have bodies that are alive. Paul says we who are alive and still here when he comes will not go before those who have already died. Paul included himself in that statement. We who are alive and remain. Paul anticipated that the Lord was going to come in his lifetime. He didn't know when, but he lived out his life as a man who believed that it could happen any day. That is a proof text for that very, very statement that we just made. Paul anticipated the imminent return of Christ, and so should we. But not only we, but everyone who trusts in God, who is alive today, will be caught up together with those who have already died. How does that happen? He tells us the fact that he is coming with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. There are graves all around that will be empty someday. The Lord will raise up those who are dead in Christ. And those bodies that have been in the grave, that have been sleeping, will be brought before we are taken into the presence of the Lord. Where? In the clouds. He's coming with those saints, those who have died before, who are with him now in soul, but not in body. And their bodies will be raised up and their souls will be united with their glorified bodies. And then we're told that we'll follow after that. Those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. I find it interesting that he gives specifically three things. There is a shout. The voice of an archangel. The trumpet of God. Those three things will identify that particular event for us. I think I shared several weeks ago about the fact that Sandy heard a trumpet blast one Sunday morning and thought it was a rapture. It just happened to be my phone. It's going to be much louder than that. A loud trumpet blast. You know, the trumpet is a very important instrument as far as the Jewish faith is concerned, and as far as we are concerned, it also is a very important thing to know about. The trumpet was used by Israel, the nation, for several different things. In the wilderness, they made two trumpets out of silver. And those two trumpets were to be blasted whenever the Lord wanted to gather the people in the wilderness around the tent of meeting. It was a call to assemble. There's also a different kind of trumpet known as the shofar. It is a ram's horn, hollowed out, 
and there's a blast of air that has to be blown through that horn to make it sound in a very appropriate way. Sometimes that was used to gather the people also to assemble. Sometimes it was used to warn people that an enemy is about to attack. And sometimes it was basically just an announcement that the armies should come together to prepare for battle. There were various reasons for the trumpet blast, and they had different soundings. I believe that what we were going to, are going to hear is a very special sounding of the trumpet that says, Come up here. If you look in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 1, it says those very words to John, the apostle. After the Lord Jesus had given to him information to write about those seven churches that he wanted to address in specific letters to them, he ended that portion of Scripture by starting chapter 4 with those precious words, Come up hither. Come up here. And John went into heaven and saw great and mighty things. And he explained what took place while he was there. As he watched, there was a scroll. There was a scroll that had seven seals upon it. And John lamented the fact that there was no one in heaven, no man, no angel could open those seven seals. But then one of the elders who were present said, Watch this, John. And John said, I saw one whose appearance was like the Lion of Judah. And he came and he opened the scroll. He broke the first seal. And it was at that point that John begins to outline for us over the next several chapters the time of Jacob's trouble, the time known as tribulation, that time that Jesus spoke of as the great tribulation, the time when there would be nothing like it that has ever happened, nor will there ever be after. That is a period of seven years that will take place, but take note of the fact that the scroll is opened by the Lord Jesus. And not only did he appear as a lion of Judah, but he looked like a lamb that was slain. John makes it very clear, this is Jesus who is opening that scroll and many theologians, and I'm one of those who believe this, that that scroll represents what we refer to as a title deed of the earth because Satan in the Garden of Eden tricked Eve into eating that fruit. She gave it to her husband to eat. She was deceived and he had sinned and there was a separation. God would no longer allow them in the garden. He forced them out of the garden and he put an angel at the entrance to the garden because the tree of life was there. And they could not partake of the tree of life because if they had, they would live forever in their sin. But that act of Satan in deceiving Eve was the act that gave him an authority that was not his. And he became what the Bible tells us, the prince of this world, the god of the air. He is now in possession of this earth. We know that because when Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days fasting, at the end of that 40 days, he was confronted by Satan. And Satan offered him a deal. He said, I'll give you all of these kingdoms if you'll just bow down and worship me. Of course, Jesus did not. He would not. He could not. Because he came to save us. But the point is, Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world. They were his to offer. Jesus didn't argue, they're not yours, they're mine. 
He just confronted Satan with the Word of God. There is coming a day when he will take what is rightfully his. And that day is the beginning of tribulation. Because when he opens that seal, the four horses of the apocalypse begin to ride. And the remainder of chapters 30, uh, 6 rather, in the book of Revelation till chapter 19, we find all hell breaking loose on this earth. But there's no reference anywhere in that portion of Scripture from verses 1 of chapter 6 all the way through to the end of chapter 19. No church present. Because we're in heaven with Him. Those seven letters that I mentioned, each of them ended with the phrase, He who has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's only one other place in the book of Revelation after those letters where this reference is made. And take note in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, we're told again, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. End of line. No reference to the church. He's speaking not to the church there, but to the world who is a Christ-rejecting world. Make sure you understand. What we're talking about is a rapture of the church that will take place, I believe, very strongly, I believe will be before the tribulation begins. And there are many other proof texts for that. Now, there are many other opinions granted but they don't really fit like this simple truth that I'm proclaiming today. God is coming for His church before that great and terrible day of the Lord comes, before that tribulation begins. How long before? None of us knows. There may be a possibility that when the church is indeed raptured, however many people are taken to be with Him on that day, there will be chaos there will be all kinds of confusion. What just happened? Where did they all go? What's going on? How could this be? But the Bible tells us that there will be a great deception in that day. They will believe the lie. What will that lie be? None of us knows. How long will it take before the rapture of the church had taken place and the time of the beginning of the tribulation takes place where the Antichrist comes and makes a peace agreement with the nation of Israel that will last for seven years. That is the actual beginning of the tribulation period. We have no idea how many days or months or whatever period of time between the rapture of the church and that event. But know this, the tribulation will not happen while we are present. And that's one of the things that Paul tells the Thessalonian church here. Look, don't worry about the fact that you are being persecuted. Don't worry about the fact that some of you have died because there is coming a day when the Lord will take you out of this, this world. And that is not going to happen. The tribulation will not happen until that event takes place. Now, Paul will explain that more deeply, more perfectly in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He gives great detail about the Antichrist 
And again, the church is nowhere to be found. Paul says here, We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. All of us, both the dead and the living, will be caught up into the presence of the Lord in the clouds. Jesus is not said here to be setting his feet upon Mount Zion. Don't confuse the two events that are spoken of with regard to the coming of the Lord. This first event, the rapture of the church, is where he takes his church up into heaven to be with him. And it tells us very specifically, there we shall be with him from that point of time onward. But in other portions of scripture, we're told that Jesus is coming back to the earth to set his feet upon Mount Zion. And we're told in more than one place that we will be coming with him. That will happen at the end of the tribulation period. So the rapture happens before the tribulation comes. The Antichrist will begin the tribulation by making the peace treaty with Israel. It will last for seven years. And then the Lord will come and destroy the armies at the Battle of Armageddon that come against him in that last hour of that particular terrible time. And that is what is known as the day of the Lord. The time of Jacob's trouble will come to an end. And he will begin his reign on the earth. And we will be with him. We're coming with him for that great event. Chapter 20 in the book of Revelation. James speaks of it. Jude speaks of it. Peter speaks of it. Paul speaks of it. It is going to happen. It is a time that we can look forward to. The tribulation is not. None of us have to worry about the tribulation. That's what Paul is again saying to this Thessalonian church. They were concerned that they were already in the tribulation. Paul said, no, 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 it hasn't happened yet. This is what you should be looking for. This is what you should be expecting. The Lord will come and he will raise us up, all of us, to be with him. Again, verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. That's where, not on the earth, not yet. But what's the reason for us going up into the clouds, into heaven? Well, there's two things that I want to point out to you. And the first of those two things is what Jesus himself said. Jesus said in John's Gospel, and you can turn there with me, John chapter 14. John 14 Jesus, before he departs into glory, speaking to his disciples, before he was to lay his life down for them and for us, he spoke these words. Chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Where is that place? He explains, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, it will, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What Jesus is saying is, there is a place for you in heaven that he is preparing, and you are going there. He's coming to get you and bring you into that place. That's a reference to the rapture. Jesus gave it to us so that we could know His intent is to bring us 
into that glorious, glorious place. First Corinthians chapter 15. The Corinthian church also needed to know about the end times. They also needed to know what was going to happen in the future. It was based upon some of them who were arguing that Christ didn't rise from the dead. There was no resurrection. Paul adamantly opposes such a foolish statement as this. He goes on in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians after having talked about the reality, the veracity of the truth of his bodily resurrection from the dead and what it means to us as a believer. He says in verse 51 these final words. Let me read verse 50 also. It says now in verse 50 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. That's why I've emphasized, by the way, that the graves will be opened and the bodies of those who have gone on before us will be raised up. They won't be raised up in their mortal bodies. They will be changed just like you and I will be changed from these mortal bodies, which are just simply tents, temporary dwelling places, into a more permanent, eternal building. Our bodies in glory will not be the same as our bodies here in this present hour. Aren't you glad? Hey, look around. I think that's a wonderful thing to know and to believe. But they will be glorified bodies. They will be fit for eternity. These bodies, these tents, are not fit for eternity. These are limited bodies. Those bodies will be incorruptible. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, whenever you see the word mystery in the New Testament, where it is referred to, especially by Paul, it is a fact that has now been revealed. It's a mystery to those who don't know the reason for these things, or the purpose of those things, or even the fact that they will take place. They are mysteries to those who are outside of the faith. But those of us who are inside the faith, who are believers in Christ, can know that this mystery has been revealed. And he says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. There it is again. We shall not all die. Our physical bodies will go into the grave, but not all of us. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed, transformed. The word in the Greek is metamorphosis. We use that term when we're talking about the fact that a moth spinning a cocoon, within that cocoon, in, in just a few matter of days, has a transformation. And that moth that was just a worm becomes something that can fly, completely different, completely changed, not the same as it was originally. It comes out of that cocoon a metamorphosized being. We shall all be metamorphosed. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Do you know how fast that is? The word translated moment is the Greek word atomo. And we get our word atom from it. We've only recently learned to split the atom, but all through the many years where they knew about 
atoms and molecules, they assumed that the atom was indivisible. And it's what Paul is referring to here as something that is absolutely, without possibility, divisible. It is a moment of time. You can't get any less than this. That's the implication. In a twinkling of an eye, not a blinking of the eye, but a twinkling of the eye, about three hundredths or three one hundredths of a second, I think it is, or maybe even more. It's a very, very fast event. That is what is being spoken of. It will happen suddenly. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, he's referring to what Paul said back in Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, a trumpet blast will be sounded. For the trumpet will indeed sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. The dead in Christ. Again, referring to those who earlier, he said, were sleeping. The dead in Christ will raise first, incorruptible. And then we, who are alive and remain, will be caught up together with them and there we shall ever be with the Lord. They're both of these passages speaking of the same event, the rapture of the church. Well, what about this word rapture? Where do you find that in the Bible? It's not. Oh, oh, what are we going to do with that? Nothing. There are a lot of words that we use to explain events. They're not in the Bible, but we use the words anyway. So the rapture is just one of those words. Where do we get the word? Well, if you happen to read the Latin Vulgate, anybody here have the version of the Latin Vulgate that you read regularly? Okay, good. <laughs> well, in the Latin Vulgate, the Latin word in that passage in First Thessalonians chapter 4 is rapto, rapte, in some form of that particular word, it is translated, transliterated to the word that we use, rapture. It's basically the same word, but only in the Latin instead of the Greek. Now, I'd rather use the word rapture than the original Greek word, which is harpazo. Almost sounds like somebody's pizza. But in any case, harpazo means snatched away, taken out quickly, plucked out, suddenly. Remember Jesus talking about the fact that we as believers are in the palm of his hand and nobody can hapazo us from his hand. Nobody can pluck us away. Nobody can take us out suddenly. That's the same word in the Greek, harpazo. It does mean exactly that, a snatching away, a taking out suddenly, a plucking out. The rapture. It's the same phrase in the Latin. It means exactly the same thing. Taking out suddenly. The trumpet will sound. And take note of the fact that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says the last trump. Well, that's a a portion of scripture that gets confused by so many people. I want to spend just a moment of time with you on that. There are several trumpet blasts that are referred to in the word of God. In the book of Revelation, there are seven trumpets being sounded, all of them having to do with the judgment of God against a Christ-rejecting world. Those trumpets are blasted by angelic beings, 
And the very last of those trumpets that are sounded in the book of Revelation opens up the last seven bowls of judgment that are poured out upon the face of the earth. Some people believe that what Paul is speaking of here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a reference to that last trumpet blast. That's absolutely without any way of confirming. But I can tell you this. That blast is blasted by an angel to bring judgment upon the earth. The blast that is spoken of here in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is a blast that brings us into his presence. It is a blast of a trumpet that is a sound of assembly, not a sound of judgment. Don't confuse the two as so many have. Because if you believe that that last trump has a reference in the book of Revelation, then what you're saying is, I believe that the rapture of the church is going to take place at the end of the tribulation period because that's when the trumpet blast that is referred to there takes place. It's false. It's not good Bible exegesis. We shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the air. And then finally, the last wonderful word of truth in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 18 says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Our God wants us to be comforted by the truths that we have been looking at today the truth of his return for his church, the truth of the fact that he is going to raise us up to be with him in glory, and we will be there for a period of seven years in heaven. There is another thing that is known of as the marriage feast of the Lamb that will also take place in heaven while the things on the earth are taking place at the tribulation. We'll be in heaven. That's why I referenced Earlier, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. John was told by the Lord, come up here. And he, representing the church, was taken up into heaven. And it was there that he saw great, wonderful things that were taking place. The sea of glass, the throne of God, and he who sat on the throne. How glorious and how magnificent. And all the elders, all the angels all the beasts that were surrounding the throne. He witnessed a view of the heavenly places that we will one day see ourselves. And it wasn't until the end of the book of Revelation that we see the church coming with Christ from heaven down to earth where Christ will then set his feet upon Mount Zion. He'll be riding on a white horse. He'll have a name written on his side that no one knows but him. And we will be riding with him on white horses, clothed in precious white garments, unscathed, without sin, in glorified bodies, entering into a time that no one has ever seen before since the Garden of Eden. And for a thousand years he will reign and we will reign with him in our glorified bodies over the mortals who will enter into the kingdom. That's another story. I don't want to go into detail about them. But there will be people entering into that time 
at the end of the tribulation period, they will be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom of Christ in their, glory, in their mortal bodies, and they will then live as you and I are living here today in those bodies for a very long time. Comfort one another with these words. I don't know about you, but I would not be comforted if I knew that I was going to face all of the various things that are going on in the tribulation for all seven years, not just the last three and a half. Even the very first three and a half years are a time of great trouble, a time of great sorrow, great confusion, great difficulty, great chaos, great sin. So much so that they will be crying out to the rocks, fall on us and save us from the wrath of the Lamb of God. The wrath will have already begun. But you and I are not appointed unto wrath. Paul tells us that in more than one place. We've already seen it once in First Thessalonians. You'll see it again as we continue reading that great, wonderful story that unfolds for us in the writing of this letter and the next one to come. I'd like to end with this one last verse of Scripture that we would like to look at with you today. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning with verse 23. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Friends, we're closer today than we have ever been to the coming of the Lord. As each day passes, we're that much closer. Peter himself said, in these days in which he was living, he considered them to be the last days. John also said something very similar, but made it even more emphatic. He said, we're in the last hours. It was considered to be so already now, over 1,900 years ago. But here we are, waiting for his return still. Has he forgotten? Has he changed his mind? Has he made different plans than he once had back then? Now, something different? Something yet to be revealed? I answer, no, of course not. He has not. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He is not changing any of his plans. He is right on schedule. It's his timing, not ours. And I'm glad that he has not come yet, because if he had come 40 years ago, I wouldn't be a part of the church of God. If he had come today, all of us who are here would be raised up if we believe that he is indeed the Savior of the world who died for our sins and we have accepted that salvation that he is so freely given. We are a blessed people because we have been given a great privilege to be part of that which is about to take place someday soon, however long it may be. But I still maintain that it could be now. 
It could be this very moment. It could be within an hour or two or a day or two or a week or two or a month or a year. However long it is, I trust my God that He will indeed bring it to pass because that's His Word. So what are we going to do about it? I suppose we could say, well, the Lord has delayed His coming so we can sit back on our butts and not do anything. Jesus warned against that. The knowledge of the rapture of the church, the imminent return of Christ, should inspire all believers to continue to be on guard, to continue to look for that wonderful, glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to anticipate it as our great blessed hope, our great expectation, the great promise of our God to us who believe. We should be indeed wanting to serve Him unwaveringly, trust Him without fear or doubt, believing He's coming. He's coming again. That's His word to us today. Does that make you comforted to know that He is indeed going to come and not allow you to experience the wrath that is coming upon this world? It does me. Oh, my friends, be ready. Be waiting. Be prepared. But don't be scared about what's going on in the world around you. He can take our bodies, Satan can, and do whatever he wills. If God allows it. If God doesn't allow it, then he won't. But what if he does? Are we going to be saying, well, I guess he's not coming. I guess he changed his mind. How many of us will still be here when He comes? How many of us will be in the grave? It doesn't matter. We're all still alive. That's what Jesus had said. Though He dies, He shall yet live. And if He lives, He shall never die. Do you believe these things? He is the resurrection and the life. And it will be exactly as He has declared, promised. It's our blessed hope. It's our blessed hope. Don't you forget it. Live every day as though it has the greatest Promise that you could ever lay your hands on. Embrace it. Believe it. Trust Him for it. Live for Him, knowing that it is true.